master recording. As a, as a master recording, listen to it in the future. So I've asked an old colleague of mine in from London, uh, Mezzi, to come and speak to us about uh, his pre-hospital experience. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mezzi. Mezzi, please introduce yourself to, for my listeners. Uh, thank you very much, Merit. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, my name is uh, Mezzi. I am a final year medicine medicine trainee, uh, currently a physician response unit fellow at Bars Health Trust in London, um, and obviously having an interest in pre-hospital emergency medicine. All right, that's great, Mezzi. You mentioned you are a PRU fellow. Do you want to tell my listeners what PRU is? Uh, yes, Mehmet. Um So the Physician Response uh, Fellow, um, or the Physician Response Unit, uh, was founded in 2001, and I've seen many iterations. Um, in its purest form, it aims to deliver emergency medicine uh, care to the patient in the community. Uh, it provides an advanced pre-hospital response to 999 calls, which is fully patient-centred. The service is a collaboration between the London Air Ambulance, Bart Health Trust, and the London Ambulance Service. It has a broad remit spanning from urgent to critical care, plus major trauma capabilities within the northeast region of London. As I mentioned, we are part of London Air Ambulance, uh, which of course, everyone knows the popular London Hems Trauma Service is, is also part of it. And we exist through the funding of Tower Hamlets and the other collaborators. The clinical lead is Tony Joy, who is a Hems consultant, and we have other consultants working with us also as, uh, as um, PRE consultants and also um, Hems consultants. The operational team is quite small, it's a tightly knit team. It, it comprises standard. Emergency medicine hired specialty training, and then an um, emergency ambulance crew, which come from the London um, Ambulance Service. Occasionally, we have a PRU nurse on board, and sometimes the HEMS registrars or consultants would also be on board. But as a standard team, it will usually be emergency medicine hired specialty training and emergency ambulance crew, which we call an EEC. We are stationed at the Royal London Helipad and the team operates a shared decision-making model which means that we decide on each case as a team there is no real hierarchy uh, within the service we currently operate two operational teams uh, within the east london footprint uh, the morning team and then there's a later team so one starts at eight till six till starts at 1 p.m till 11. it's not it's not yet it's in our service but i believe that in the years to come that will be what we'll be aiming for. All right. Okay, you mentioned PRU is a team. So how one can apply to become a PRU fellow or a team member in PRU? Uh, thank you for that. Um, yes, so the, um, uh, the advertise, the, the role is advertised on NHS website, I think um, twice a year. And the selection and training process, I must say, is quite intense. Uh, but if you are lucky enough to get on, the, the PRU fellow will undergo a six-week sign-off period, which involves a kit familiarization, utilization, moulage, critical care and trauma scenarios, and navigation, uh, which is closely guided by the senior HEMS consultants and the HEMS paramedics. This six-week period will culminate into a one-day sign-off, uh, which you'd be um, 
monitored by uh, one of the HEMS consultants or query consultants, and at which if you if you pass, then you become a full fledged fellow. Uh, during your time um, on the fellowship, we are also exposed to various trainings alongside the HEMS trauma team, which include plasma anesthesia, thoracotomy, extrication of the London Fire Brigade, a peer course, uh, which stands for Plasma and Emergency and the Vascular Resuscitation course, which is pretty much learning about Reboa, and also a punk course, which is a Plasma Underground and Novel Concept course. This is probably course sort of specific to London and it's mostly for patients who have been found under a training that have been jumped or a suicidal attempt which is quite a very common thing uh, for the HEMS trauma team. We also uh, attend a seven-day pre-hospital critical care course which attracts lots of international candidates from various fields and various experiences in emergency and, and critical care. The standards and training is such that uh, we often say that the worst doctor with the worst eek on their worst day in the worst circumstances can and will produce the same standard of care and safety for their patients. Good. Um, so we're going to go to the next question. Okay, Mezi, my audience, especially uh, myself, we're interested to know about your equipment. Can you can you tell us about the equipment that you carry? Uh, yes. So we carry lots of kits, um, diagnostic, therapeutic specialized kits. Some of our diagnostic kits would include your your average everyday ophthalmoscopes, um, otoscopes, your urinalysis tests, then up to an ISAT machine, which is a portable blood testing device, which we can do uh, a VBG or an ABG, and also check your biochemistry. We carry a portable ultrasound scan, which has fixed probes on them, but you can switch them uh, for any kind of setting you want. We have a monitor pack, which can do ECGs, defibrillation, basic observations. And therapeutically, we have medications of all forms, really. We get different we have different kinds of analgesia, IMs, IV, oral, buckles. We carry Penthrox, which is an inhalational uh, anesthetic, which is really good for moderate to severe pain. And we've got medications for critical care, reversal of poisonings, nerve agent gas, reversals, antidotes, sedatives. As far as trauma goes, we've got things from um, splints to max hemostatic devices to thoracotomy kit. We have advanced airway kits. We use the Lucas 3. And we also have uh, PPEs, which include um, stab vests, life jackets, equipment for working in dangerous environments. We have a major incident kit with us, which is um, a portable pack that has pretty much everything you need to set up a local triage uh, for a major incident to support London ambient service. A vehicle is a four-seater vehicle which is configured specifically for London's air ambulance to fit our needs. Okay let's just talk about patient selection like I want to know how do you select the patients that you go and see Right, so we don't really have our patients selected by ourselves. Uh, we get dispatched from the London Ambulance Service Dispatch and Control. We see a range of categories from category one to four. Category one being life-threatening patients, all the way down to four, which are non-life-threatening patients. We can, on occasions, be first attenders or first respondents. 
um, to a patient. And on some occasions, we will attend to assist the crew, either for decision making or to assist in selection for safe transfer or critical care interventions. The LAS have strict guidance on which they use to manage patients. So oftentimes they cannot do certain things that we can. For instance, the LAS cannot leave a child less than two years old at home if they've, if they've been called to see the child for whatever reason. Uh, we do try not to interfere when we get there and there's a, and there's a crew attending. And uh, we just try to work as a team with the London Ambulance Service. We do not refuse any job if it comes down to the radio. We would always go to a job. Patient is center of what we do in um, emergency community medicine and um, I think when you're an EM trainee you don't actually see the other side of, uh, of the patient's journey we only see what happens when they come to ED and what happens before they get there can be huge determination or sorry a, a huge determinant as to how they want their care and how to manage them um, appropriately. We um, have various amounts of, of, of information coming through from our laptops when we are on scene if the patient is within our area. So we can log in and have a look at the patients and see their GP records also. And if they're within the East London region, we have another portal which we can look into to find out what they're on, what their plans are, you know, with specialties of their GP. So it comes in quite handy. We have a service called Panda, which we use to communicate between the teams and uh, we're able to use that as a follow-up. And we can also use Coordinate My Care to plan further care for patients or for GPs to follow up with. We, we do a lot of integrated community care with other services within the region. Um, so we can arrange for patients to be reviewed by district nurses, uh, by palliative care teams, um, by um, specialty nursing teams, physios, depending on what they need. So we work very integrated, very tightly knit with services within the community. We are not an admission avoidance team, and so if a patient needs to go into hospital, we are quite happy to get them conveyed by the LAS to hospital. We try to effect anything and everything we can do in ED, if we can, in the patient's home, uh, but we try not to stop the patient who needs to go into ED, to go to ED for care. You are truly a emergency department at patients' home, aren't you? Yes, we're pretty much um, in a and &E on wheels. <laughs> That's good. Okay, Mezzi, how has COVID-19 changed PRU's response to patients? Um, right, so COVID-19 has thrown um, some challenges that hopefully we are meeting. We have created some guidance to help support our acute hospitals, all of those services, support acute oncology in the community, support the emergency departments and palliative services. We are able to review patients that have specialties but are not deemed safe to be within hospital in their own homes. And uh, the trust has also provided some patients with home monitoring kits for which, that we, for which we can go and assess for the trusts. It has helped us ramp up some of our community relationships to deliver care to patients. And we have PRU specific end of life care bundles, and we work much closer with our community services to achieve care for the patients who are either deemed not safe to be in hospital, are shielding 
or still require some form of care uh, via uh, ED or specialties, and PRE can deliver that easily. We use PPE, which has been outlined by NHS England, and we try to stay within those guidelines when we interact with patients in, in their homes. I have had the privilege, as have some of my colleagues, to aid the COVID-19 response by doing transfers for the new Nightingale Hospital also. Uh, my next question is, how do you make sure you always provide a fantastic care for your patients? I think the, um, the arena is ever-changing and we are always innovating and looking at ways to improve patient experience. We, uh, we do hot debriefs after each job to assess and see if we've done the best thing for the patient, if we provided the best advice, if there were alternate pathways we should have um, explored. And this is a team effort. So we do this with everybody in the team. During the week, we conduct rapid reviews of all the cases. And then we have certain cases we pick out for D&D, which looks more in depth into each case and has a panel of other specialties sometimes, uh, the ED department, uh, various consultants and trainees of various grades. Uh, within the service itself, we keep looking at other nuanced ways of helping patients. So we're currently looking at the management of uncomplicated joint relocations and the need for patients to attend same day for imaging. We think that we might get to a point where if we relocate a joint and it's an uncomplicated relocation, patients otherwise well, if we could do a virtual patriclinic referral without having them come in for the same day x-ray. We're also looking at the use of Mapleson C, C circuit periodically. And this is one of our eeks is doing a literature review on this to see if it's something that we can use for spontaneously breathing patients. We have spoken about PRU uh, as general. Well, we're going to talk about you now. Tell us a little bit about a day in your life as a PRU fellow. Yes, a day in the life. So the job begins if it's a morning shift really early, if it's not, then sometime after midday. And it starts with a very rigorous kit and car check under what we call the challenge and response format. So I say something like, um, I start machine, charge and ready, and then whoever did it says check, like that's the challenge and response. And then we go through all the kits including the car and the engine and the tires in the same manner to make sure that our kit is ready for the day. And then there is no, uh, there are no issues with the kit. We're sure it's working. We've checked it ourselves and we can vouch for its um, effectiveness. And then once we're done with the, sh with the kit checks, we go online and then what we say, we, we go green and then calls are coming in through from the um, London Ambulance Service Control Room. We try to be very vigilant when we're on scene, make sure scenes are safe, you know, make sure we've got uh, good um, egress um, when we're in scenes. And we also make use of our eeks who most times have, uh, have been in London, London Ambulance Service for a long time, so they know the layout, they know the geography, you know, they've got good relationships with other crews and that can come in very helpful. The day would usually consist of anything for upwards of six jobs 
for various varied pathologies. Some might require referral, some might require uh, management in hospital, you know, with further referrals to GPs, to specialties, if need be. And some of them might need to review personally ourselves in the next shift or in the, in the days to come. The day will typically end by us going back uh, at the Royal London. And for the last hour of each shift, we are category one for the whole London, which means that if a call comes in within London, it's category one, which is your uh, not breathing, cardiac arrest, hemorrhaging patients, then we, we will leave our footprint and we can answer that call northeast, uh, south or west of London, depending on where it is. When we do get back to the helipad, we will do another challenging response of our kits, make sure what everything we've taken out or brought back with us. And we also make sure that the kits are in working order. We will uh, top up what we need. We will swap what we don't need. And we'll make sure that the kit is in good condition for the next team to take over. With the new, well, with the recent COVID-19 COVID pandemic, we also do a full wipe down of everything at the end of the day and in between shifts. And that's how the day really goes. It starts off um, with kit checks and ends with kit checks and everything else in between. Okay. <laughs> Can you tell us about an interesting case that you will never forget? Uh, yes, I think my, my interesting case at this point is very contextual um, since we're living in a new age for medicine and I think for, for us as, um, as human beings really. At the height of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic sometime in April, we got a request for an 89-year-old lady with significant atraumatic epistasis low GCS and we're refusing conveyance hospital because of, you know, chance of picking up COVID-19. On arrival, a patient was tachycardic. She had a GCS of 15, but with an altered mental um, state. And she was bleeding quite significantly uh, from her right nostril with some clots. She looked dehydrated, but she was warm and there was no focal neurology. Her background was that she lived by herself up until a couple of weeks ago. Hypertension, ischemic heart disease, hyperthyroid, glaucoma, uh, but normal ADLs, you know, doing her own chores or in meals and her own shopping. She had been managed for a chorizal type symptom two weeks before with GP with two separate antibiotics. Following that, she deteriorated clinically and, and then went on to deteriorate even more with reduced mobility of her medication and food. Uh, when we got there, we, um, we managed her bleeding uh, with just some simple pressure over the nose, just continued pressure over the nose for about 10 minutes, and that seemed to help with the bleeding. We noticed she had a new fast AF on the monitor, and her bloods were done, which in summary just showed some um, acidosis, urea of more than 50 on the ISTAT, and uh, creatinine of 695. Our hemoglobin was 99 and her blood glucose was 5.8. We couldn't look at her on our system because she's, she'd come out of area to our normal region. We heard now staying with her daughter. So we connected her GP who confirmed that her kernel, sorry, her current critical state was completely new for her and that the bloods were also really new. And uh, the GP felt that she should be palliated with such horrific 
blood test results and that she may be suffering from COVID-19. Well, the PRU team, however, decided to treat the patient in the view that she was previously well and all these are new and there could be possible reversibility of the underlying disease. And it could also be something that could be mediated from either her known problems or not taking her medication. So we gave her some IV metropolol, IV fluids, IV hydrocortisone, and after some time, we encouraged her to take her um, propylthiouracil. Within about 20, 20 minutes, the patient was sat up, and in another 30 minutes, she was communicating and she was tolerating small feeds. She became physiologically normal within the hour. We took extra blood tests to run at her local hospitals for um, everything else, including thyroid function tests, bone profile, and we discussed DNAR with the patient and her daughter. The discussion was because they were adamant that within the current pandemic, they would not be seeking any care within hospital for fear of either catching it or, in daughter's words, dying from it. So we agreed a DNR form, which, um, which I completed, and um, I emailed it to her GP uh, for a counter-signature. We also reviewed her with palliative care consultants in case she relapsed and there was uh, an irreversible disease in play and there was a deterioration of her clinical status and the, and the plan was for them to review her. We stood down the LAS crew, which means it was for non-conveyance and we left the patient at home with her daughter with some advice. Over the next few days, I followed up with the patient and she seems to have had Good clinical improvement. Uh, although the bloods that we took from her um, had hemolyzed, so I didn't know what the TFTs were, um, but the GP was was in play to have the bloods redone and would review her in the next few days. About a few weeks ago, I got an email from the daughter titled Mom at 90. And, mm. the and there's a picture, yes, it's a picture with the patients, you know, on on her birthday, smiling and with, you know, some decorations around her. It transpired that she never had COVID-19. And what I believe is that she was potentially at that point hyperthyroid, dehydrated, leading to an acute renal failure. And as of last week, I checked her creatinine and it was 130. And she's okay. now mobilizing and doing her own chores herself in her home. So I think um, good outcome and lots of learning. You know, I think during this COVID-19, there's been lots of misdiagnosis and mistaken diagnosis. And I, I think that what we were able to bring was that patient-focused care. You know, we went there, we took history from the patient, we examined the patients, and we gave proper treatment to the patient. And sometimes it doesn't always work, um, but I think if, you, if we do the little things, we do well all the time and you know we'll wait and see and in this case she's um she's um she's alive and well which, which is i think is a good outcome for everyone especially her okay mezzi thank you for speaking with us and thank you for sharing your experience uh, as a pru fellow what are your famous last few words thanks for having me on uh, great job and i'll speak to you soon thank you very much mezzi thank you
what happened to you? Oh, sorry. I, I didn't hear that. 